0: Greetings, this is Kurt. This is a continuation of the third and largest portion of Book One, Enchanter's Lot. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theatre, we recommend you step back and find the first episode of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. Otherwise, make yourself comfortable as we continue the performances. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments and questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to be a preferred audience member and help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com listed with the description of each episode. And thank you for listening.
1: Who is responsible for that horrible sound? Speak up,
0: it is maestro. Just a little jam in me double horn. Keep your jam in the double jar.
1: Ready? Ready to lift the gate?
0: Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. This is Episode 5. The Harkin Theater presents the sound plays of A Bridge of Doom by Kurt. Hoteling. Book one, part three. Enchanters' lot. Chapter five. Paul and Marie stepped off the G-Bus and into the noontime bustle of university students and downtowners seeking lunch or doing business. Medieval music wafted out of a nearby bookshop's open door.
2: I still find this amazing.
3: What? Coming into town?
2: No, no, the fact that you have a bank account and your name already set up. Tucking a stray
0: lock of her dark hair back under her knitted cap, She smiled at him and lifted her eyebrows.
3: If you say so, love. But no more amazing than what you were able to do on my world.
0: True, true. He stuffed his hands into the pockets of his pleated tan trousers and swayed slightly, balancing himself on the curb's edge.
2: I keep forgetting that.
0: She surveyed the shop fronts along the sidewalk on both sides of the street, then waved her hand in front of her face with a grimace as the bus pulled Mm. off in a roar of diesel fumes.
3: Gods, those things do smell bad.
0: No worse than horse manure, I would think. Paul shaded his eyes from the reflections of sunlight flashing off the tall windows of the long student apartment building overlooking the street from a distance.
3: Begging your pardon, sir?
0: She lifted her chin.
3: But horse droppings do not smell very much, if at all.
0: Really? He raised his eyebrows with interest as he looked back at
2: her. Now that you mention it, I never did notice any bad smell around Bomalai.
3: If you had, I would suggest you were smelling yourself, sir.
2: He smothered a smile. I suppose I deserve that one, my lady. But how about... He
0: tried to remember the various recognizable animals he had glimpsed while in the streets of Forun. Dogs. There had definitely been plenty of those about.
3: Dogs don't blow it in your face. And you only need to watch your step to avoid bad smells following you about.
2: He shrugged. I'm inclined to agree with you, but our society has gotten used to the convenience of combustion engines. And the people that make them don't seem all that interested in the pollution they create. If they did, there'd be something else to ride around in by now.
3: Such is the price of advancement without wisdom. Rosson would decree. Of course, he was speaking of those who sought the benefits of magic and power, but not the discipline required to contain them.
2: Paul tilted his head thoughtfully. I suppose a car would be considered magical to someone who had never seen one before. A horseless carriage that moves under its own power.
3: Either way, I prefer horses.
0: She turned about on her heel as she looked all around.
3: So where is this Liberty Bank?
2: around this corner and down a block.
0: He took her hand in his and tugged her along, dodging two people scurrying past, then went around a newspaper vending box chained to a signpost on the edge of the sidewalk. A brisk autumn wind blew vigorously down the street, carrying leaves and litter and smells of fresh cooked food in its wake. His eye on the clear blue sky beyond the railroad bridge spanning just over and behind the next intersection, Paul shrugged down into his wool jacket and stuck his free hand into his warmer jacket pocket.
2: It's going to be a cold winter.
3: This is cold to you?
2: Marie
0: took in the sights and sounds of 9th Street at noon. This area of the city, bordering the extreme northern boundary of the campus, was a popular gathering
2: place for university students and employees.
3: Feels good to me.
2: I did notice Fayek or at least where Foreign was located, was not as warm as here, despite your two sons.
0: They turned the corner and strolled down the side street that avoided the wind. The amount of traffic and pedestrians lessened here,
2: making conversation easier. Did the cashier at the administration building tell you anything else about your account?
3: She said my intuition and fees...
2: No, no, love. It's called tuition, not intuition. She stopped and blinked as she took this in.
3: I thought that was a bit presumptuous of a school to ask payment for my own ability to perceive things.
0: Then started walking again.
3: She said my tuition and fees were being paid out of an account at this bank.
0: Are you sure it's this one? Paul had not heard of Liberty Bank and had only found it by consulting a telephone book just before they got on the bus. Marie had announced her intention of visiting the bank when he had invited her along for a trip to his favorite natural food store. Apparently, the bank was a one-office company, having a single number listed in the white pages. He wasn't sure if a small bank was the best place for an account, though he would be the first to admit his lack of knowledge concerning financial institutions and what qualities or detriments might mark a bank as stable or not. At the same time, he didn't want to mess with something already arranged. Thus, he had resolved, after all his silent fretting while they rode the bus, to leave any decisions to Marie.
2: It is her business, after all.
3: She said that my financial arrangements had already been made and gave me this little book with a shiny skin, saying she had been instructed to give it to me when asked.
0: She stopped and pulled a savings account passbook out of her pocket.
3: Isn't this the name on it?
0: Paul took it from her hand and read
2: the silver embossing on the booklet. Mm Mm-hmm. The shiny skin is made out of plastic. It's called a protective cover.
3: Plastic? But it is a skin, isn't it?
2: Well, yeah, I guess so. But nobody calls it that.
0: She reached out to pinch the flesh over his ribs.
3: My name isn't nobody. Ow!
0: Sorry, my lady. Marie wrinkled her nose at him and smiled.
3: Apology accepted, my lord.
0: Rolling his eyes at the formal title, she only used it when she wanted to vex him. He rubbed a finger over the cover's smooth surface.
2: May I read it?
3: I wish you would. Contrary to the textbooks I've been reading, I couldn't understand very much of what was written in it, except that it was supposed to tell me how much money this bank is holding for me. I haven't learned about your world's money yet. In fact, I was beginning to wonder if your world used money at all. Everything I've had to purchase so far has been at the university's bookstore, where they say it goes on my account.
0: She waited patiently as he slipped off the cover and read the booklet's contents, then became concerned when his eyes widened and he clapped the booklet shut.
3: Is something wrong?
0: He stared at her for a moment, then grinned as he shook his head. Not at all, Marie. Not at all.
3: I desperately need to buy some clothes. I don't want to keep borrowing the stuff from others in the dorm.
0: She patted her knitted cap pointedly.
3: Will there be enough money, do you think?
0: Oh, yes. More than enough.
3: Enough for both of us to buy things?
0: Even before losing her parents to a grim attack on her village when she was in her early tweens, she had never had very much. Through her excellent horsemanship and place as a royal messenger, she had kept a steady, if meager, flow of coins to keep herself and Bommelai fed and sheltered within the safety of Foran's fortress walls. The prospect of having more than enough for once in her life was exciting.
3: Doubly so is to have someone like family, for I have no doubt that Paul and I are now family.
0: His smile faded as he pushed the booklet back into her hand.
2: Now hold on there, sister. This is meant to be your money, not ours. But- No, no. My financial situation will suffice my needs, even if it isn't a king's ransom. I won't take advantage of something that belongs to you. Do you see my name in there?
0: She glanced at it, cheerily reflecting the sunlight in her palm, then slipped it back into her pocket.
3: No.
2: All right, then. It's your money to do with as
0: you wish. Pursing her lips in thought, she regarded him silently for a moment.
3: If this is my money to do with as I wish, then I wish to buy you something with it.
0: Paul smiled crookedly, knowing better than to argue with her, especially when it
2: involved refusing a gift. If you must, then I hope buying me lunch will suffice.
3: Agreed. Where would you like to eat lunch? I haven't seen more than the campus ca- caf cafe.
2: Caf-ba.
0: He was patient with her difficulty pronouncing words that were
2: completely foreign to her tongue.
3: What you said. I wondered if there were other places to eat.
2: There's a nice bagel eatery back on the corner I like. Bagels are a kind of bread. They make great sandwiches. He took her
0: hand in his again, and they continued toward the bank.
3: Sounds good if you like it.
0: She slipped an arm around his waist and pulled herself close as they walked.
3: What's a sandwich?
0: The teller opened the passbook, flipped to its balance page, and cast a perfunctory glance at the numbers written within, then looked up and smiled at both Marie and Paul.
4: Glad to see you, Miss Ryder. What can we do for you today?
0: As Paul had instructed at the writing desk, Marie slid a completed withdrawal slip across the counter. Though Paul had been the one to fill it out, she not able to write English. When Paul had asked how she took notes, she explained that writing for herself was no problem. She used the Fayekian language. With this discovery, Paul foresaw his own task of typing her papers for her.
3: I wanted to, to make a small withdrawal, if that's all right.
0: Studying the figures filled into the slip, the teller slowly looked up and blinked with contained amusement at Marie's hopeful gaze.
4: Why, of course it'll be all right, Miss Ryder. I'll just need to see some identification, this being the first time I've met you.
0: Marie proffered her university ID card eagerly.
4: I'm afraid this is all I have. This is more than sufficient. We have lots of accounts with students and faculty. Just let me update your passbook, count out the amount, and we'll be done.
0: Marie watched with fascination as the woman tapped her fingers swiftly over a key panel, which produced machinery noises, then scribbled more ciphers in the passbook. At the same time, this was the first woman she had seen closely in Paul's world that wore powder and colored paste on her face, and she had to control the urge to stare. Hmm. Marie found it attractive and refined.
3: An enhancement of her features instead of a mask, like the overly powdered and heavily colored faces of the older women who attended court. I wonder if anyone's allowed to wear it here.
0: Also, the woman's thin necklace and jewel-encrusted ring caught her eye.
3: But this is a bank, much like the money changers on my world. And such people are always well off. And how would you like
4: that? Large bills are small?
2: Tens and twenties.
4: Tens and twenties? Certainly.
0: She counted out $500 onto the counter.
4: Will there be anything else we can do for you today?
0: Marie stared with puzzlement at the stack of currency, having never seen paper money before. Paul had paid for their bus trip with coins, then recovered quickly and smiled back at the teller.
3: No, thank you.
0: She lifted the money carefully from the counter, cradled it in her hands, and with an awkward glance between the teller and Paul, curtsied slightly.
4: Fare thee well.
0: The teller's eyebrows went up with interest.
4: Thank you, ma'am.
0: Then looked to the next person in line.
4: May I help you, sir?
0: As they headed for the doors, Paul lifted the bills from Marie's palm, folded them, and handed the wad back to her.
2: Stick them in your pocket and don't show them off. The first thing you're buying is a purse.
3: Is paper such a valuable thing here?
2: He had to think about her
0: question before he realized she was used to trading coins and not dollar bills. Recalling from memory a term paper he had done in eighth grade about the United States
2: mints. It's not just paper, Marie. Dollars are made of cloth and paper and marked with special ink. A long time ago, people decided that lugging around sacks of coins was cumbersome so they put all their valuable metals in vaults and created paper money to represent it instead. It's easier to carry.
3: But I saw you pay for our journey here with silver. Can I get some of that too?
2: Yes, but you'd find it difficult to carry all the change your paper is worth. You'll get some when you buy stuff. We use coins for the smaller amounts of money.
3: You mean this paper is worth more than silver?
2: Its value is based on the price of gold, actually. She
0: clamped her jaw shut and squeezed his wrist.
3: This is intolerable not knowing about your money. When we get back to campus, you and I are going to have a long talk.
0: Her eyes still on him, she turned for the sunlit glass doors and inadvertently bumped into another patron just entering the lobby. She had to look up to see the startled man's glaring eyes.
3: Please pardon me, sir. I was being careless.
0: His distracted expression softened as he inspected the floor and his hand to make sure he hadn't dropped some of his papers. Not at all, miss. T'was my fault not seeing you there. He looked between her and Paul, flashed a disarming grin of even white teeth from within his goatee, good day, and proceeded to the teller's windows. Curiously, Marie watched him stroll away.
3: He speaks differently from anyone else I've met here.
2: Paul guided her through the glass doors. I think he's on the medical faculty. He's probably from Great Britain. A kingdom that colonized our country over 200 years ago.
3: A kingdom? Really?
2: Sure. Now if you want to talk about confusing money... They blinked their eyes in the
0: brighter light outside.
2: Let me tell you about the British pound.
4: Good afternoon, Dr. Brent.
0: The teller smiled as she took his withdrawal and loan payment forms. How are you? Fine, Amy, fine. Maximilian nodded distractedly, his mind on other things. A passing thought noted the interracial couple he had bumped into at the doors, and he wondered who had pursued whom in that instance. Being from Switzerland and educated in England, he saw nothing out of the ordinary with interracial relationships, no stranger than a Jew or a Gentile coupling. And he was puzzled with the negative American attitudes at such a natural thing. Two people being in love, or lust, which was more likely among these young nubile females and their men, was supposed to be allowed a part of their maturing process. On the other hand, his own family, being rich, might find disagreement with his marrying a woman beneath him from the poorer families. Of course, he had discarded any concern with such trivial domestic affairs years ago for more stimulating alternatives.
4: That's an interesting ring, Doctor.
0: Amy completed his receipts and counted out cash for his withdrawal. Ah, thank you. It's my fellowship ring from Oxford University. He held it up for her to inspect, using the opportunity to scan her surface thoughts in the same fashion someone else might glance at a magazine cover in a newsstand. Reading nothing out of the ordinary, fascination with his jewelry, charmed by his English accent, and a small prurient curiosity as to his prowess in bed, he stopped and returned to his business at hand, taking note of her wedding ring. Well, such social formalities have never stopped me before. But then he had no interest in her in the first place and let the idea drop. I've better things to do than play games with a common woman.
4: That's lovely, Doctor. Will there be anything else we can do for you today?
0: No, no, my dear, this is all. He took a moment to slip the money into his wallet, which he placed back in his breast pocket, then winked at her. See you next trip. Returning to the sidewalk, he headed for a gym and bookstore down the street. The purchase of some rock salt was fresh on his mind, as well as a larger piece of hematite for a lodestone. Tonight's summoning ritual would no doubt use up the absorption properties of his present one. Even if one ignored the fact of his practicing witchcraft, Maximilian Brinth would still be considered unusual for his paranormal abilities. The discovery of his extraordinary mental powers had been accidental. He and some boyhood friends experimented with a popular ESP test kit and, in the process found he could read what was in his friends' minds with minimum effort. All it had taken, apparently, was the stimulus of the test kit to bring his talent to bloom. At first, he broadcast his mind reading freely, enjoying the special notice of his novelty. Then, when his friends shunned him because of it, frightened by their lack of privacy with their own thoughts while they were associating with him, Maximilian quieted down, and even pretended that he couldn't read minds anymore, that it had all been a trick, but it had been too late. Word of his sorcerous talent served to isolate him from everyone who knew him. Thus he learned to despise others, and came to believe they avoided him because of his superiority. His family took pity on him, unaware of the true nature of the aversion, believing he was rebuffed because of their money. His father was a partner in one of the more eminent Swiss banks. They eventually decided, for his best interest, to send him to a prestigious school where he could grow and learn among those of his social rank, reinforcing his conviction in his own superiority. By the time he arrived at Oxford University, where new acquaintances unaware of his abilities waited, he had become quite introverted, choosing to develop his mental powers over possible friendships. Thus, while furthering his academic pursuits, he also discovered new depths to his psychic prowess, the power to dominate certain others. He happened across the latent ability inadvertently during an evening with a lady friend to whom he felt attracted.
2: <laughs> After
0: the theater and a supper at a local pub, their first date they returned to her flat and proceeded to share a respectable bottle of wine purchased after supper. They were barely through the first glass when it happened. Though both had been acting with appropriate reserve, neither wanting to tarnish their social reputation among their peers, she suddenly stood up before him and undressed herself, her face devoid of any expression, her eyes staring blankly ahead. As he watched her toss each article of her clothing aside, he realized his own thoughts were so concentrated on seeing her naked and making love to her that he had numbed her mind with the force of his. To verify his discovery, he released her from his thoughts and enjoyed her expression of utter shock as she awoke to find herself almost completely nude, except for her panties and the brassiere she had just removed dangling from her hand. Oh! Maximilian then dominated her again before she could collect enough of her wits to realize what had made her do that. Their relationship became strained after that night, she becoming disturbed by her periods of memory loss when she was with him and several mornings waking up to remember little about the previous evening but finding him sleeping next to her. Few tears were shed on his part when she stopped seeing him. The ecstasy of dominating others with his mind supplanted his disappointment in losing her. Besides, if there was a woman he wanted, more than likely she was his to ravage. Those individuals with sturdy self-determination presented a challenge for his powers, but were usually overcome. Theft was child's play. If he wanted something for which he didn't care to recompense, he simply blasted the owner's mind which numbed them to their surroundings until he was long gone. Life had become an elaborate game over which he was the undisputed master. Thus, his interest in the occult, a world that offered him new horizons. It was a fortunate marriage for him. During a brief visit to a rare bookseller's shop, he met an East Indian student with a mental mastery that matched his own, yet neither were interested in friendship. The resulting psychic battle would have ended with both men unconscious and permanently insane if it had not been for Maximilian's tap into the depth of the dark powers. The confrontation, which took no more than a minute or two outwardly yet inwardly seemed to last hours, ended with the Indian suddenly screaming in pain, clapped his hands to his head, then fell unconscious to the floor. Still several paces away, Maximilian was able to simply walk out of the shop unnoticed as other patrons went to the young man's aid. The last he heard, the Indian had been taken to hospital and been admitted to a coma ward where he languished to this day. Because of that unexpected yet triumphant encounter, Maximilian Brent furthered himself in the black arts, moving from simple spell casting to the highly dangerous ritual of human sacrifice. Being a medical researcher, first and foremost, studying the causes of death, the idea of sacrificial rites never bothered him. Yet he could quote his Socratic oath with his fellow colleagues and not experience any guilt. Like a drug, the raw tingle of black magic surging through him during the first sacrifice in which he had partaken allured him, ensnaring him in the addictive opium of supernatural power. From his place in the circle standing around the altar, he had savored the thrill of seeing the desperate fear in the old woman's eyes as she struggled with the chain
1: and
0: <laughs> when the shining ceremonial blade had been shoved into her chest and her hot blood had spouted over her gauze robe, Maximilian had felt her life force transmuting to pure power within the circle. Early on, however, his coven had had close brushes with the law, Some of the fanatical members of his original circle went so far as to kidnap babies for sacrifice or young children to defile sexually, one of the more primitive methods of black magic for which he cared little. The practice had led to an uncomfortable police investigation when a coven member botched the disposal of an 11-year-old girl who had been repeatedly raped and cut during a ceremony. Feigning a catatonic stupor, she had escaped just before she was to be killed and found her way home where her parents launched a widely publicized search for her tormentors. Though several of his cohorts were identified and arrested, Maximilian survived Scotland Yard's inquiry unnoticed and unscathed. As a result, he devised a safe procedure for acquiring the necessary fodder for sacrifice. Through his consultations, he was frequently made aware of terminally ill cases. In his home, he kept a secret file of those patients who lived alone. When a human sacrifice was needed, not all that often, one or two times a year, he would simply go to the patient's home, numb them into a stupor with his mental powers, then take them back to his coven's meeting place where they performed the satanic rites. Once the ceremony was completed, the body was left in their regular clothing, minus their wallet, for appearances, of course, in a back alley or trash dumpster in the crime-infested areas of town. Invariably, the subsequent police investigations presumed any combination of common theft coupled with a fatal knifing. A couple more unsolved murders per year hardly raised any eyebrows at the local constabulatory, especially when the victims were apparently foolish enough to wander around the shadier parts of the city. In this fashion, he maintained a facade of respectability, untarnished by any visible connection whatsoever with suspicion. And, in keeping with his choice of the terminally ill for sacrifices, They have just as much life energy as a healthy individual. He liked to think he was more civilized than his brethren. For what purpose did it serve to kill the young and healthy when they could be subjugated instead? The power and prestige of international recognition was his primary goal, the advantages of unchallenged diagnoses and unlimited research funding, the siren song that drew his ambition ever higher. But all of this was modest sport compared to what he planned for tonight. Lighting the last candle, one of the new ones he had picked up at the gem shop, Maximilian stepped back and made a final perusal of the gate. Tendrils of spicy sweet incense wafted across the room. Glancing between the book in his hand and the chalk marks on the floor, he decided the gateway was as accurate as it was going to get this first time, and he placed the book aside, quelling a knot of apprehension. This was a new realm in black magic for him. He reviewed the procedure one last time for calling a demon into the world. He had amused himself thus far with conjuring small horned ones, gremlins, to inflict upon various irritants on the faculty. Lab equipment failed, specimen freezers wavered, destroying years of precious research, funds disappeared, delicate cultures spoiled, and all the while, Maximilian watched and sneered privately at his colleagues. Such. Stupid lowlife they are, never even remotely considering the possibility of supernatural forces, of magic at work. Bad luck? Of course, but nothing so implausible as the invisible forces. Historically, those aggressors successful in war, at least at the start, used the dark forces. Dear Fury, Adolf Hitler used psychics for astrological forecasts. His favorite one foresaw the Third Reich's rise and fall and Astral Projectionists to spy on his enemies' war rooms. The Japanese generals used the Ching, something Maximilian tried but didn't care for. An oracle that answers everything in riddles until their emperor and god incarnate put a stop to it. From that point on, they lost ground in their war against the United States. The Koreans and the feared Viet Cong used similar divining systems in their respective conflicts. The former Soviet Union researched psychics. Even the American military wasn't above experimenting secretly with drugs to see if it enhanced individuals' ESP. Of course they denied such activity publicly. And yet the majority of Americans were shocked and astounded by a first lady who consulted astrologers. But they didn't think twice about reading the daily horoscopes in their newspapers. Or calling one of those innocuous 900 exchange telephone numbers and paying for a psychic reading from someone they would never meet face to face. The Fools. They toy with it like children. Will they ever learn of, or accept for that matter, the powerful underground society of psychics, witches, and metaphysicians working in their country, in the world? Of course not. There is no scientific proof. Like the faculty members Maximilian railed against, he thought the general public nothing more than blind idiots. He smiled to himself, recognizing this outwardly ignorant society as his perfect playground. The problem he was faced with, however, was the underground society. Already, several rival metaphysical wizards had probed at his home's psychic defenses. Though they hadn't done more to his magically laid wards than a curious dog's wet nose would have done to a picket fence, the fact that they knew of his existence was enough to warrant action on his part. Tonight was a full moon. His yet unknown rivals would no doubt be attempting a psychic break-in, testing his strength. Maximilian had no interest in having truck with these inferior wizards and warlocks, nor with those white witches who would hamper his activities if they knew of his presence or his identity. He preferred to work alone or with his hand-picked coven of occult worshippers. In keeping with the old saying, the best defense was a good offense. What better than an enslaved astral demon to patrol the perimeter of my property for the next three nights of the full moon? Now he was alone in his own basement where he performed many satanic rites privately. He mused as he gazed around the windowless room with its cinder block walls. It lacks the opulence of my English home's wood-lined cellar. Nevertheless, it is private. As soon as I earn tenure with the university, I'll find a better house to live in. But for now, with his residency tentative with restricted one-year contracts, this place would have to serve. He glanced at the old banjo clock he kept on the wall next to the stair leading up to the kitchen. Midnight. Approaching the small flaming brazier set against one wall in lieu of an altar. Though he used the dark powers, he doubted seriously the existence of a fallen angel named Satan. Satan he emptied the contents of a specimen jar, a human appendix and a small yellow glob of human fat, leftovers from weekly surgical procedures, and strips of blood-soaked gauze into the brazier. The residual life energy of these items was usually more than sufficient in replacing the psychic resonances of a fresh blood offering. Maximilian not caring to scar his arms and wrists in drawing his own blood like the many practicing witches and warlocks. The flesh and fat crackled and sizzled with an acrid black smoke that churned upwards and spread across the ceiling, thus the burning incense to counter its smell. His offering to the dark powers complete, he turned and took a firm stance, spread his hands over the sketched pattern on the floor, and intoned the cryptic phrase that would begin a flow of power into the gateway. Then, unsheathing the dagger from the wide belt that held his black robe closed, He held it before him, curved blade downward, and summoned a horned one. The room fell cold, as if a door into winter had been opened. The brazier's flame dwindled, coughing and spattering violently, then spewed out a momentary pillar of flame. Suddenly the candles were extinguished, plummeting him in utter darkness the last thing he recalled was an explosion of green and amber light over the chalked gateway, as he was thrown against the concrete wall
1: behind him. Disgusting sweet smell.
0: Sitting on the floor, slumped against a wall where he had landed, and vaguely aware of the pain radiating up from his coccyx, Maximilian fluttered his eyelids open and squinted at the vertical beam of fluorescent green light blazing forth from what looked like an opening in the air over the floor. Intense heat enveloped him, and the walls reflected a distant roar like that of fire and machinery. Tentatively, he touched the back of his head where it ached from a spreading bruise, then quickly gathered his wits about him as he remembered what he had been doing just before the explosion.
1: Who's there? Ah, the sub-creature
0: is awake. A silhouette intruded on the green glow.
1: You humans are such fools, dabbling in realms where you have no business.
0: Anchoring a hand on the wall behind him for support, Maximilian stood up, shielded his eyes with his other hand, and weaved his head left and right, seeking a weaker area of the blinding aura. I can't see you. You have feeble eyes as well the light faded to half its intensity, leaving the basement well illuminated with a sickly shade of green reflecting like a patina of corrosion on the concrete surfaces.
1: Such a pathetic thing you are. But you will serve.
0: Maximilian frowned at the man. At least he thought it was a man. Clothed in something he might have called a Peter Pan costume, except it was blue and black. Who are you? He had expected a major horned one, and not this strangely dressed being.
1: I might ask the same of you, human.
0: The visitor crossed arms haughtily over his chest.
1: You have been tapping into a distant corner of our realm for some time now, taking some of our lesser servants for whatever amusement you savor. Now you will requite those indulgences with service to us.
0: Having no patience with demons projecting illusions to keep him off his guard, Maximilian remembered the binding spell he used for the creatures when he called them and pointed to the pentagram sketched at the center of the chalked gateway pattern. You will serve me, demon. I bind you within the shackles of the five points. His dark yellow eyes flaring with indignation, the visitor flicked a finger at the doctor, slamming him against the wall again. Maximilian's lungs were slow to fill again as he tried to move but could not, a terrific invisible force holding him motionless.
1: That's enough childish noise from you, human. The air crackled suddenly,
0: permeated
1: with a violent energy. I am succor of the supreme lower world.
0: He came close to Maximilian, the reflected green light illuminating a devilish leer shining
1: out of his dark countenance. Never dare defy me again, or you forfeit your miserable
0: His teeth and ears were long and pointed, his face framed by jet black hair shot with electric blue. He wore a short, sleeveless, fringed tunic belted at the waist, a sash of purple across his shoulders, two curved dirks sheathed at his sides, and a small pistol-gripped crossbow from his belt. High black boots reached up to just below his knees. Below his pointed ears dangled small bones. From a baby's hand, the doctor surmised.
1: As you can see, if there is to be a binding, you will suffer.
0: He spun on his booted heel and walked back to the center of the floor, tossing a careless finger in the air. The tremendous pressure holding Maximilian to the wall evaporated suddenly, sending him sprawling to the floor. Enraged at being bested by what he considered nothing more than a non-corporeal entity using the energy of the gateway to manifest itself, he began drawing on his well of inner power, preparing to unleash his psychic domination. Bloody bastard, we aren't finished yet. But before he could gather enough strength to carry out his intent, Sakandra turned back around and gestured with a fist. Again, a tremendous weight pressed down, flattening him to the floor, and forcing the wind from his lungs.
1: What was that, human?
0: Suddenly, instead of weight crushing him, a seeming weightlessness lifted him from the floor and left him floating in midair. his face at eye level with his unwanted visitor. sakandra came close again, examining him as Maximilian would a disease specimen.
1: I am drow. That fact alone brings mortal fear to most semi-intelligent creatures. I might mash you to a fleshy pulp or suffocate you with a thought.
0: With interest, he regarded his captive's resentful
1: glare. Your defiance speaks well of you, human, but it is wasted on me. Will you pursue a vengeance you will never taste?
0: He glanced over at a heavy wooden table set in a far corner and covered with books.
1: Behold!
0: In the next instant, it shattered and collapsed into a pile of splinters, the books falling into a sprawled tumble on top of its remains. Bloody. His eyes fairly bugged out. It had been a heavy library table constructed of white oak and must have weighed over a hundred pounds. Now it was nothing more than tender for firewood. Sikandra returned his yellow gaze to his captive's stunned expression and grabbed the doctor's jaw between two powerful fingers.
1: Do we understand one another?
0: Having never before been thrashed so completely, and shaken by this creature's superior powers, he managed to swallow apprehensively. <laughs> Worse, sakandra was corporeal, able to touch him physically, unlike a normal astral entity. This was a new feeling for him, caught between anger at being trounced and terror at what this intruder might do next though he wasn't so numb with fear not to notice that Sikondra must have required something of him, else he would have killed him by now with one of those formidable dirks. Yes. Sikondra regarded the fear in his captive's eyes
1: and nodded perceptibly. I believe we do. Now, who are you? Dr. Maximilian Brenth.
0: Sikandra touched a tongue to his upper lip as he squinted in thought at him.
1: That's too long. Give me a shorter name.
0: Maximilian. He had never adopted the shorter Max as he felt it lessened the effect and authoritativeness of his full name.
1: Very well.
0: Sikandra stepped back and strolled the perimeter of the basement while his captive continued to hover in midair.
1: Maximilian, with my arrival comes your fortune and your future. We of the lower world have need of an agent in this world who will be an integral part of events affecting our future.
0: He stopped and pointed
1: at him. You will be that agent. You will be the chosen one. Chosen for what? part of his
0: mind argued that this was some extravagant hallucination brought on by the explosion and his impact with the wall. The thin beam of green light gave everything a distorted cant, and the air seemed to hum with discordant energies. Yet he knew when, and if, things returned to their normal state, his table would still be a pile of splinters.
1: There is a -a runagate in this pathetic world of yours. Someone who does not belong. That meddlesome enchanter, Gawon, was the catalyst for sending him here. Now, with you being the most powerful warlock in the immediate area, and... uh... He eyed Maximilian appraisingly. Being indebted to the dark powers for servants rendered, it shall be your task to find this man, restrain him, and bring him to me. Dr. Brynth frowned
0: despite his vulnerable position. This was an odd request, considering the nature of Sakandra's apparent abilities and purposes. What
1: man! He is the heir to the Light Dynasty in this world known as Paul Bach. Find him. What is the Light Dynasty? A surface realm that threatens us. Great. That tells me a bundle.
0: He figured any more questions about Sakandra's world would provide similar, inane replies deciding to agree to anything so long as he was eventually left alone, he nevertheless succumbed to his curiosity
1: for one last question. Why do you want him? To bend him to our will, our power, and to make him serve the lower realms. Sounds like a bloody communist from the Cold War years flung about my own basement
0: then ordered to do an errand like some cursed underling if you're so bloody powerful why don't you go find him yourself Sikandra exhaled through his nose with impatience and scowled at his captive
1: you have struck upon our one problem which is why we have chosen you Maximilian my time is short therefore I shall be brief "'Using this gateway,' he gestured to the floor, "'and one like it on my side of the void, "'I have crossed timelines to my own past, "'but in your world, as opposed to mine. "'Unfortunately, the terrain of the past is uneven, "'and doing what I have done requires an enormous amount of power. "'At this moment in the future of my world,' Eleven of my brothers, as well as eleven blood sacrifices, are channeling magic into the gateway, keeping it open for me to return.
0: Despite his helplessness, he had tried to move, but felt as if he were swimming against a current that matched his efforts. Maximilian found interest in Sikandra's explanation. What do you mean by uneven terrain of the past? Sikandra paced back and forth impatiently
1: passage of time is subjective, exclusive to each and every individual. Time is not a straight line, but more like a bead on a fluctuating string, with ups and downs that slow or speed its passage, thus the irregularity. And like Miss Woman, threads these time strings crisscross at odd intervals. Thus it requires considerable power to break through and make changes.
0: Maximilian was intrigued with this concept, but could see from his visitor's restiveness that he shouldn't interrupt. Sikandra stopped and stared with intent at the air over the gateway, as if listening to something.
1: I cannot remain any longer, he turned to Maximilian's floating form. Find the heir to the Light Dynasty. I will return in three moons, or you may call me back when and only when you have him. I will give you a servant with which to find and seduce him. She will arrive soon, and if there is any additional information, she will give it to you.
0: He came to within a finger's breadth of the doctor's nose, his yellow eyes burning with unspoken threats.
1: Do not fail me, Maximilian.
0: Lingering for just a moment, he turned and walked onto the chalked pattern on the floor and was gone in a blinding (laughs) flash. Flailing uselessly for purchase in the air, Maximilian smacked onto his basement floor, just barely able to shift his body to keep from hitting face down. With all the candles blown out, there was only the dull glow from the brazier's embers to lend any light at all. Undaunted by the darkness, he sat up, rubbed the fresh abrasions oozing blood on his elbows and spat curses at Sacondra, blood puckering, exhausted, With bruises throbbing and his bones aching from the ragdoll treatment, he stood up, savagely kicked aside some of his toppled candles that rolled under his foot, then gathered his black robes in one hand and groped his way to the wall and up the stairs. Reaching the top, he flicked the light switch on, then stopped and looked back down at the remains of his once-favorite work table. Final confirmation that the entire episode had been no dream. Too angry and frustrated to think about anything except strangling Sikandra with his bare hands, Dr. Maximilian Brent slammed the door on his basement and headed into the kitchen. First, he would tend to his scrapes Then he would research his tomes on demonology for references to any being fitting Sakandra's description. After that, he would consider whether or not to follow the orders he had been given. Bridge of Doom, Part 3, Enchanter's Lot. The sound plays were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices for Episode 5 are performed by Geraldine Cummings, Kevin Norris, Mary Celeste, and H, the Great and Powerful. The novel and its sequels are available through Amazon.com, on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theatre was composed and performed by Evan MacDonald, Florian Soral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under LieberLieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theatre at yahoo.com sound effects, and original Foley provided by Cusp Studios and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the Universe.